want to welcome everyone here this morning, and uh, we're so happy to have all of our guests with us today, and uh, we, we hope that you will be back. I know many of you are visiting family today as well. But if you're, uh, if you're from in town or if you're from nearby and you're visiting with us today, I'd especially like to invite you back to an event next Sunday night on March 29th at 6 p.m. And note this for the rest of our congregation, <clears throat> this is a break from the from the typical plan, from the typical order of things, where we usually meet in here at 6 p.m. on Sunday night. Next Sunday night, we'll meet in the Family Life Center. And there's an article about this in the bulletin, a, uh, an invitation. I don't know if you've noticed that there are, there's a lot of talk about Jesus and who he is and what he means. And that's, of course, because Easter is soon here, uh, April 4th or April 5th. And... Uh, and so, there, because of the season, there's a lot of talk about Jesus Christ and biblical history. And people who, um, who market these programs and market this media, they know this. They know that there's an interest in this right now. That's an opportunity for us. It's an opportunity for us to share our faith with others. And it's an opportunity for us to reaffirm our faith and our belief to one another and from one generation uh, to the next, just as uh, Don invited all of us to consider the, the, the men's retreat. Don, I think you coined a, a new fra- phrase. What was that? The, uh, the severely wisdomed? I, I li- that's, that's good. That's good. We need that. Uh, we need to, from time to time, observe the Lord's Supper as it fits into the Passover and the Last Supper and then the Lord's Supper that we observe every Sunday. And what this event on March 29th will do uh, is it will give us the opportunity to examine what God is doing. It's an opportunity for teaching. And you can read more about it in the bulletin here, but I do want to read uh, this to you. Our reflections will be centered on the scriptures that inform these occasions where God is present with his people. Our songs of worship will respond to what God has done and is doing. And at the conclusion, we'll have bread and the fruit of the vine at tables. We'll gather around the table and commune in this setting, using the opportunity to teach one another about communion. It's an excellent opportunity for us to pass on remembrance from one generation to the next and to encourage one another in the presence of Christ. I hope that you'll not only take advantage of this, but take advantage of other opportunities. One of our Sunday morning classes is called Come to the Table. And some of these themes were discussed in that class as well. But uh, as the Lord's people, we are called to remember him every time that we gather in his presence. Would you pray with me? And I want to continue our study in Judges this morning. Father, would you bless us today as we've gathered together to commune? We've gathered together to be in your presence. We've gathered together to encourage one another, that you are never far from us, that you always draw near, that you are drawing us closer to you. And Father, often the world that we live in separates us from you. It, it competes for our attention. And Father, sometimes we even do that when we gather together in your name. We, uh, we're rushed, we're hurried, we're forced to think about other things. And God, we, we get so busy with so many things that we don't stop to focus on you. And I pray that you would help us with this. Help us to dedicate ourselves, to dedicate our lives and our life together to you so that we might make a difference in a world that you care about. 
not for our sake, not for our glory, but for your glory and for your purposes. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. For our guests, we've been uh, going through a study of the judges. And uh, it has that, that action that you might remember from comic books. Uh, judges, and, and no story is filled with such action like the story of Samson. And Samson is the last judge in a series of judges. These judges are not just rulers, but they're bringers of justice. Samson, in, in, in the second part, I mean, his story is so filled with action that, that we had to break it into two parts. And we've seen that Samson was, was set apart. I guess I should say, uh, you know, on the previous episode of the adventures of Samson, maybe that'd be the appropriate way to introduce this. But Samson is set apart as a child in a nation that doesn't cry out for God's help, but in a nation that willingly surrenders to the Philistines, not even aware how the Philistines rule them. So God intends Samson to be something of a culture warrior. Uh, we talk about the culture wars today. They're nothing new. Uh, don't, don't believe the idea that only in the last 50 years has there been tension within cultures. There's always been tension within cultures. It's kind of the nature of cultures that there's going to be tension because we live in a broken world. And, and God sees that his people have been at ease with the Philistine rule, and so he's going to set apart Samson with the Nazarite vow, which means that he's going to stay away from everything having to do with grapes and the vineyard and wine, which means that he's not going to cut his hair, which is going to be a sign of his, of his being set apart. Uh, it also means that he can't touch anything dead or defiling. But setting him apart in those outward ways is meant to set him apart as one who will resist the culture. The problem with Samson is, even though his mother is dedicated to the, to the program, Samson himself is still fascinated with the culture of the Philistines. And it all begins when he goes to the town of Timnah, and he meets a woman there, a woman who pleases him, and he wants to marry her. And, you know, if you want to start a fight in a family, plan a wedding. I mean, that's how you, that's how you do it. Because everybody's got an idea of how it ought to go. And so Samson is on his way down to the wedding, and that's when he kills the lion. But it's what happens after he kills the lion that gets really interesting. When he went back to marry his bride, he turned and he looked at the lion's carcass, and he sees a swarm of bees in it with some honey. And he scoops it out and he eats it as he goes along his way. Now what's one of the things that a Nazarite's not supposed to do? Touch dead things. But he touches this honey that is touching a dead lion's carcass. Now, you and I would probably not do that because it would be, ooh, gross. Okay. And uh, I'm sure there's more than bees in that lion's carcass, if you know what I mean. All right? Uh, there's some other little creatures that aren't making honey. The, uh, I, I, you know, so it wouldn't appeal to us. But Samson also, by touching that, gets defiled by the dead thing. And he's also on his way to Timnah to marry his bride, which is wine country, which is another bad idea for one who's supposed to be set apart. Samson is still fascinated by the Philistine culture as his kinsmen see it. And though Samson is not set apart as God may have intended, God is still going to use Samson. Now get this. Samson is obviously not everything that God intended for him to be. The story makes that clear. He's breaking the vow. He's playing fast and loose with the vow. He's not perfect in the vow. 
He's even associating with the people that he's supposed to be set apart against so that he can lead his people to be distinct. And yet God's still going to use him. And it all begins, the Scripture says, look with me in in, in Judges 14. Um, Chapter 14, verse 4. Samson's parents did not know that this interest that he had in this woman from Timnah, they did not know that this was from the Lord. The Lord was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. And, And so... Samson is at a wedding feast. And at a wedding feast, you know there's going to be wine flowing. There are no teetotalers in ancient Philistia. There are no teetotalers in that world. Wine is expected at an occasion like this. And though it doesn't say specifically that Samson is indulging, what else explains why he decides to give this riddle? Samson decides to enter into a bit of a friendly wager. Um, besides, Samson's done enough other stuff. Believe me, this would be one of the least of his offenses. Uh, verse 12, uh, verse 10 of chapter 14. Samson's father went down to see the woman, and that means he's going to make the arrangements for the wedding. And Samson made a feast there, as was customary for bridegrooms. And when he appeared, he was given 30 companions. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within seven days of the feast, I'll give you 30 linen garments, 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. Samson has put on the line, think of it like this. He's put on the line the tuxedo rental, okay? He has said, look, you 30 guys are here And I've got to fork over this expense if you guess my riddle. But if not, then you have to pay me the expensive clothing. Fine. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. And his riddle is, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. And of course, we know that Samson's referring to what happened with the lion and the honey. We know that. We're the omnipotent reader. We get to know that. But they've got to think about it. How are they going to come up with the answer? And the risk is on Samson. Because, but the reward is also with Samson. Because if, if he loses, he has to pay up in a big way. But if he wins, he gets all of those fine changes of clothing. He gets all of that payback. It's, it's 30 versus 1. 30 to 1 odds. And he knows they're not going to guess their riddle. Well, not if they simply apply their own senses to it. So what do they do? For three days, they could not give the answer. And on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's house to death. Did you invite us here to rob us? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him sobbing, you hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. He says, I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. And before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And Samson said to them, 
If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. And then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. You know, these guests feel like they're getting cheated. An unsolvable riddle. They've shown up and they're going to be robbed. They're going to lose money on this deal. Same thing still happens in weddings to this day, I guess, you know. The, uh, you, 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 sometimes you feel like you, you have to fork over a lot. All the tensions there in this wedding feast, his wife is upset. But of course, I don't know of many where there's the threat of death. You tell us the answer of the, to the riddle, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. In this whole story with Samson and the Philistines, there's going to be a lot of back and forth and accusation as to who started it all. But I would say it's the Philistines that raised it to the level of death, of physical threat and harm. You tell us the answer, or you and your father's household are getting burned. And so they answer the riddle, and they get it right, and Samson loses, and now he has to pay up. He has to pay up 30 changes of garments. So what does he do? He goes down to the town of Ashkelon and he kills 30 people and takes their clothes and then gives it to these guys. The escalation begins. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power and he went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of their belongings and gave their clothes to those who explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he went up to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his friend who had attended him at his wedding. I know the, if you don't stop and pause there and wonder, wait a second, wait a second. This man who's supposed to be a bringer of justice has just become a mugger? He's just become a murderer? It's not everything, as we've already said, it's not everything that God has intended. But God may still work through this. And just because the Spirit of the Lord has come upon Samson with power does not mean that Samson uses that power the way he's supposed to. One of the things that we affirmed last week, and I want you to continue to think about this, is that God gives us gifts. And God gives us power. God gives us the ability to do things. But there's never any guarantee that we use those power and resources As God intended. This is why we have to be humble. This is why we have to dedicate and devote ourselves to God. Samson is wrapped up in the Philistine way of doing things. They can threaten harm. He can threaten harm. He just happens to have some gifts and some power that they're not aware of. But on and on the escalation goes. Now, this next part reminds me of a Jerry Seinfeld joke. Jerry's talking about weddings, and he says, why is there a best man? And if there is a best man, then why is the bride marrying this guy instead of the best man? Because if he's the best man, it seems like she should marry him. He ought to be the second to the best man is the way it ought to go. And I like Seinfeld's explanation that you have that whole row of guys out there as, as groomsmen because then, you know, if one of them falls down, you just move the next one up the line just like a, you know, Just like a conveyor belt, you just keep moving one up. You're going to think about this all summer long as we have weddings, aren't you? uh, Now you might, but um, it's our traditions. And, And now you really see what can happen with the best man. So gentlemen, choose wisely when you choose your best man. Because the father of the bride said, Samson didn't show up. He's at war with our people. We'll just give the wife off to the best man. And when Samson shows up, he's not happy about that at all. 
So now he goes into another rage. Later on at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and he went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room, but her father wouldn't let him in. I was sure that you hated her, he said. So I gave her to your friend. Here, have her younger sister. Isn't she attractive? Take her instead. Well, Samson's not going to be happy with that. So he says, if this is the way you're going to act, I swear I'll get even with you and I'm not quitting until the job is done. And this is when he takes the foxes, ties their tails together, lights them on fire, sends them out into their fields. Samson has gone off the rails at this point. He's just tearing things up. He's burning everything down. This is the original scorched earth policy. Samson has become a death dealer. Uh, he's, and, and, and now, this is, this is where the, the ironies continue. With all of this chaos going on, the Philistine authorities get involved. Uh, verse 6 of chapter 15. When the Philistines asked around, who did this? They were told, Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his friends. So what do the Philistines do? They go up and they find Samson's father-in-law, and they burn him and his house down. They burn them to death, which they originally threatened back when they were trying to get the answer to the riddle. Now the Philistines have gone off the rails. Samson's not alone in this. There's just gunplay everywhere, and everyone's getting caught in the crossfire. That's Philistine justice. This is why God needs justice in the world. Read it, and you, and if you walk away from it. You say, this is not right. No, it's not right. They burned down the house of the people that they threatened. She gave them the answer that they wanted. Meanwhile, Samson slaughters many of them, and he's hiding out in caves near the rock of Etam. And so the Philistines went up, and they camped in the tribe, tribal land of Judah. And the men of Judah came to Samson, and they said, or they, the men of Judah came to the Philistines and said, Why have you come to fight us? They say, We've come to take Samson prisoner, to do to him as he did to us. Now this is a blood feud. Nothing more than a blood feud. One lone man, Samson, versus the Philistines. 3,000 men from Judah go down to the cave in the rock of Edom. Now, now stop for a second. You're going after one guy. How many do you take with you? I would think that three, four, maybe 20 if he's really big. 3,000? 3,000 of the men of Judah. They can't be stirred up for any other reason, but because they've got this adjutant among them, and they know that the Philistines are going to go to war with them, their thinking is, if we give up Samson, then maybe they'll leave us alone. So they go and they plead with Samson, and they say, look, let's take you to the Philistines, and then they'll leave us alone. And Samson agrees not to hurt his own people. They're still scared, even though there's 300 of them. He says, tie me up and take me to them. Just don't kill me. And so they do. And they take him. And when they get him there, here comes the action. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes. They led him up from the rock. And as he approached, the Philistines came forward, shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and the ropes became like charred flax, the bindings dropped from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. He grabbed it and he struck down a thousand men. And then Samson said, With a donkey's jawbone, I've made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I've killed a thousand men. And the place is known as Jawbone Hill from that day forward. 
Now Samson has the upper hand. He's, he's drawn out the Philistines and he's attacked in a thousand of them. And the blood feud goes on. The battle is fought. But one of the things I want you to notice, we've seen mighty battles. We saw Shamgar in his one-sentence appearance. Maybe two sentences. Shamgar, he killed 600 with a stick. He also saved Israel. With Samson, you see these mighty battles. You see these, these mighty attacks. You see these feats of strength. But who gets saved? Who gets delivered? One of the questions we've been asking all through Judges is, what do you do when deliverance doesn't seem to deliver? What do you do when salvation doesn't seem to save? Samson has the power. Samson has the will to fight. But Samson is not giving the land rest. And nowhere do we see that he delivered Israel. The fight continues. You know, it's at this point that we almost have to create like a scorecard to keep track of this. Maybe we need brackets for Samson versus the Philistines. And brackets the num- and Samson's the number one seed everywhere. But remember how it goes. Samson wants a wife from Timnah. The Philistines, try- they, they solve his riddle by cheating. So Samson goes down to Ashkelon and he kills 30 men to pay off the, the debt. They gave his wife to his best man. So he burned the crops. He's hiding out now, taking revenge. They kill his wife. Because they did that, he goes out and he slaughters a thousand at Jawbone Hill. He's captured by Judah. They turn his own people against him. Then there's this interesting story where Samson's visiting a house of ill repute, okay? I'll leave it at that. And they think, you know, while he's vulnerable, we'll go kill him. The problem is, Samson takes off a lot earlier in the evening than they expected, and he tears the gates off the city of Gaza and mounts them on a hill, which often was a sign that a, that, a, that a greater army, a greater force had come in and just raided you. They didn't just come in and steal things from your house. They ripped the door off your house and then put it out in the front yard so that everybody could see, look what we've done. It's a form of psychological warfare. So this fight just continues to go between Samson and the Philistines. Until they get Delilah to betray him. There's Delilah. This is the story that gets romanticized. And other than the back and forth between Samson and Delilah over her trying to get the secret out of him of his strength, there's really not a lot of romance in this story. Samson apparently falls in love with her. Let's read it. Uh, One day Samson... Let's see. Fell in love, verse 4, with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the rulers of the Philistines went to her, and they said, now you would expect at this point that they're going to threaten her with violence, just like they did his first wife. Now, there's other ways to get to someone. With Delilah, money talks. See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. From that time to the time of Jesus, the price of betrayal went down. 1,100 shekels of silver from each one of these rulers, probably the five rulers of the Philistine cities. Money talks and Delilah betrays Samson. She finally gets the answer she wants. 
She has his hair cut off. His strength is taken away. It seems like God did Samson wrong, right? Sometimes. But God didn't betray Samson. Delilah did. Samson really has surrendered himself. In that way, he represents his own people who have surrendered themselves to the delicacies of the Philistines. He surrendered himself to the things among the Philistines that are attractive and and, and nice and keep his attention. And in doing so, he loses what makes him distinctive. And that's what gives him strength. Well, once again, you would think the story ends there, right? I mean, they, they do him a serious harm. They gouge his eyes out. He can't see. They turn him into a, a, a slave. They make him work and grind the grain. But Samson has one last opportunity. As his hair grows out, God uses him. They try to bring him out, the rulers of the Philistines. They bring him right into the temple of their false god, Dagon. And they're going to put on a show for Dagon, for their false god. And that's when Samson finds the right place. He has the strength. And with a prayer on his lips, he has one last act of revenge. Toppling the towers over. Everyone knows this story about Samson. It's what gets played up the most. Where he's in the temple of Dagon, he tears it down. I don't know how collapsing two pillars causes the whole thing to come down. But the word of Scripture says that in his death, Samson becomes an avenger. With one avenging blow, he prays. Let me be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And stop and think about it. You're looking for last words. Samson's no Nathan Hale. Give me liberty, give me death. He's not someone who, who is willing to lay down his life for the sake of his people. He just wants to get back at them for poking out his eyes. But at least he's praying to God. Samson is our flawed hero. He doesn't have the wisdom that Deborah had. He doesn't have the courage that Maybe Gideon had, or certainly Othniel. He doesn't have the clever ability that Ehud had in making the blade that killed the king, the oppressive king. But Samson will go down and take everyone else with him. The building crashed and all the tyrants and all the people in it, and he killed more people in his death than he had killed in his life. And when we look at the cycle that we've been used to seeing, the people do evil. They are oppressed by an enemy. With Samson, we're seeing that cycle deteriorate. The people did do evil. The people are oppressed by an enemy, and they surrender themselves to it. They've accepted it. They've fallen asleep. They don't cry out. But even though they won't cry out, God will still send a judge. But the judge doesn't even have the ability to deliver them. He may have the power but he doesn't have the will. And that's why the angel of the Lord says to Samson's parents, he will begin to deliver his people. This is why God uses Samson to start this opportunity to fight the Philistines. A deliverance that will not fully be achieved until King David generations later. But it all begins with Samson. 
They gouged his eyes out because Samson was the first one to poke them in the eye. Samson was the first one to say to them that they could not rule over God's people. And it's in the temple of Dagon himself, once again, important poetry, important point, that he ends his 20 years as a bringer of justice. There's one other thing that often is said at the end of a cycle with a judge, that in addition to delivering the people, there will be rest in the land. But even after Samson brings down the temple of Dagon, there's no rest. This is just the beginning. Samson brings some justice. For Samson, it looks like revenge. And God is constantly doing his alchemy. You know, alchemy was the ancient science, where their so-called science, where, where alchemists were trying to find ways to turn lead into gold. They were trying to turn something ordinary into something valuable. God has to do that. He has to create out of nothing. He has to use the flawed things of the world. He has to use the things that that are not valuable, and he turns them into something valuable. And God is trying to redeem Samson's revenge. It's a race for God. God's able. But how much more could have been done if God had not only the power of Samson, but the heart of Samson? Later on, you'll see a king before David, Saul, who has that same power. But Saul's heart is not completely turned to God. It's when we get to David that we see a king who has at least courage, if not the same kind of power. Later on, he's equipped by God. But the most important thing is he's got a heart for God. And even though Samson brings some justice through revenge, it's never enough. The land never has rest. And oh, there are things that we need to note here. First of all is this. We live in a world that has a lot of Samsons in it. And maybe there's a lot of Samson in us. Someone hits us, we want to hit them back. We hit them because we need to hit them back, they hit us again. So we've got to hit them again. Where does it end? Where does the cycle of violence stop? You can do it on an individual level. You can do it on a familial level. You can do it on a national or a global level. And it never stops. One of the things that some people have said they miss about the Cold War, as if there was anything to miss about it, but at least there was the idea that was in the back of everybody's mind that if we fire the button and set off the nuclear missiles, or if they fire the button and set off the nuclear missiles, it's all over. And it's a way of emphasizing the fact that this cycle of revenge, this cycle of violence, it's not going to solve anything. The land is never going to have rest. God's shalom is never going to be accomplished in that way. Because here is God who has to somehow bring justice into a world where his children often hate each other. The only way he's going to do it is through grace. And the only way you're going to have grace is not with a fighting hero warrior, but with a king. It's one of the messages of Judges. That everybody's going to do what's right in their own eyes when there is no king. Four things to wrap this up. God is faithful even when we're flawed. One of the things we see 
The time that's spent on the story of Samson, even though the conclusion is less than satisfying. What's so surprising about that? God spends so much time on us. And sometimes we're not nearly as satisfying as we think we want to be. But what's God's option? God chooses to work with people. Sometimes we don't understand God's purposes. We often don't. And people who are both critical and defensive of God. Because we think that God is some supernatural force. We think that God is some sort of supernatural being who's just meant there to fix things. We've got kind of a mechanic God who just swoops in, saves the day, makes everything right. There's disease in the world, God will take care of that. There's injustice in the world, God will take care of that. And when he doesn't, we call him out on it. Hey God, you're not doing your job. Maybe God is doing his job. Instead of dealing with the problems in the world, maybe God is highlighting the fact that we are responsible for many of the problems in the world. I'm not saying you can say that we're responsible for everything. There's obviously some brokenness in the world, but if you stop and think about it, where we may see God working is not in the things where we expect Him to be working, but He's working in the human heart. Because God has a way of working, a gracious way of working, where He's not just going to come in and hit the delete button and eliminate all evil. He's already tried that. Read Genesis. He's already attempted to do that. He was even ready to delete the Israel project. But instead, God is moving surgically. If he can take the, the, the mechanism of oppression and sin out of the hearts of the human beings who caused the problems, then maybe there's a chance to save it all. More than a chance, a reality, a truth. And that's going to take a king. That's going to take a sovereign lord. One of the things you see in the Samson story, too, is that God opposes oppression and idolatry. The two big problems that God has in all of these stories with the judges is that there's an oppressor or there's idolatry, or both. And in Samson's story, there are those who will oppress others, even if the people don't know they're being oppressed. Let's define it. What is oppression? Oppression is abusing, using, taking advantage of other people, keeping them submissive and under control so that others can be in control idolatry is worshiping something other than god when our king jesus christ comes what are his two greatest commandments love the lord your god with all of your heart soul strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself the opposite of those will be idolatry and oppression jesus is not just espousing a two-part philosophy that makes us all happy and makes us get along, Jesus has the solution to the problem. Because if you find yourself anywhere, then love for God and love for others, you are on the side of oppression and idolatry. And it may be hard to get on the Jesus agenda. He never said it was easy. He just said it was right. Which brings up the third point. The grace of God is going to trigger opposition. See, the grace of God is not something cheap and easy. The grace of God can be scandalous. Scandalous. Why would God use someone like Samson 
who can't seem to control himself? Why doesn't God choose someone better? What's the alternative? The grace of God, which promises that there might be a way to to even redeem the oppressors and the idolaters, can be scandalous. And if we're going to be faithful to his gospel, then we need to know that we're in for a fight. What often keeps us out of the fight, what often disqualifies us is our fascination with the ways of the world. Or our fascination with our own sense of control. We want to be in control. We want things our way. And we don't become faithful, we just become selfish. Samson wanted his revenge. He wanted his pound of flesh. He wanted revenge for gouging his eyes out. He wanted the things that pleased him. And yet God's grace still uses that for his purposes. There's one more story in Judges that we'll get to next week. And in that last story in Judges, not only do the people not cry out, they find out that the oppressor turns out to be no one but them. And they find out that they have become oppressors of their own people. But even at that moment when things are so bleak, God is still stepping in. And what they didn't know then, that we know now, is that we have a king. Now, to get to that place, you have to get out of the place where things fascinate you. What an interesting song that's been chosen. It's a song that I don't know if we, we really understand how to sing it anymore. I mean, we might know the tune. It's familiar to some of us. Oh, I love this song. Don't we sing this at funerals? We need to sing it while we're alive. We need to sing it among the living. This world is not my home. We need to remind one another that all of this is temporary. And it's going away. And then God does not expect us to be at ease with our ways, with our legacies, with our empires. And he calls us to a more excellent way. As we stand and sing this song, I want to invite you to affirm your faith to God. If, if God could work so powerfully in the life of Samson, who was not completely dedicated to God at all times, just think how much he could do with all of us. Jesus said, if you have faith, no more than a grain of mustard seed, you can move mountains. He can move mountains through you. God wants to work in your life, through your life. Be a hero of faith. Leave the world behind. As we stand and sing this song, there will be elders here to welcome you in prayer. There will be elders in room 100. If today's the day you want to dedicate yourself to God, then let us know that. Let's stand. Let's sing.